Well, good morning, church. You want to take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Revelation. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. If you're looking at those black Bibles that are in the chair that you're sitting in, uh, that should be found on page 1028. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. I encourage you to keep your Bible open and read with us and, and follow along carefully to what the Lord is saying. And as always, we want to remind our people that when, when, when you hear and what's coming from this pulpit and it's in line with, with Scripture, we should believe and obey. But when you hear something that is not out, when it's out of line of Scripture, you should just disregard. Uh, we, want to, we want to hear from the Lord and what he is saying from his word this morning. Y'all there? All right. Well, years ago, when I met Katie and we started dating, it wasn't long before I realized this is the one. And I was overjoyed because this was the woman whom I could finally share a marriage license with. And I remember, I remember getting down on my knee and in front of by Lake Michigan and Chicago and, and asking her, Katie, will you share a marriage license with me? I remember on the day of our wedding, I woke up thinking, this is the day. I finally get to experience what I've been waiting for all these years. I finally get a marriage license. The ceremony went well. We had friends coming from all over the country to celebrate with us, but I couldn't wait to get out of the ceremony. I wanted to see our marriage license signed. After the reception, we rushed to the motel, and Katie, Katie was as beautiful as ever. And what I was thinking about more than anything else was running to the CVS to get a frame for our marriage license. We bought a frame, we put it on the dresser that night, and we stayed up late that night on our wedding to admire our marriage license. It was wonderful. And after 17 years of marriage, the thing I appreciate the most about marriage is that we have a marriage license. All right, by now I hope you know I'm pulling your leg. I'm not serious. And if you don't think I'm, if you think I am serious, you're thinking this guy is strange. It's an illustration I borrowed from another writer for the point that it makes. I have a marriage license, but I have no idea where it's at. Um, I married Katie because I love her. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I want to be in a relationship with her. And we know from scripture that marriage between a man and a woman is an illustration of the relationship that we, as the people of God, are meant to have with God. And so we understand that marriage isn't about the marriage license. But sometimes we treat Christianity as if it's nothing more than a ticket to heaven, not a love relationship. Is that all right? I mean, I'm not a Jesus freak. I'm a Christian, but you guys can be the Jesus freaks. I got my marriage license. I got my ticket to heaven. Is that, is that all right? Is Jesus okay with us seeing Christianity as a ticket to heaven? Well, you don't, we don't have to guess. When we turn to Revelation 2 and 3, we're going to see how he thinks about this, and he's going to answer those questions for us. So as we turn to Revelation 2 this morning, I want to give a brief introduction to chapters 2 and 3. I'll try to frame it in just a little bit. Because what we see in chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven different, seven different churches in Asia, or we would say today in western Turkey. And if you can kind of plot these churches, they kind of form a semicircle in western Turkey. And in one sense, Revelation is a single letter. It's meant to be read in its entirety uh, from Revelation 1 to 22 to all these seven churches in a single sitting. So each church would have their specific message 
from Jesus for their church, but each church would also hear the Jesus' word to the other six churches. So these seven local churches were historical. They are real. If you went back in time, you could go to those churches. But they're also representative. We talked about how this idea of the number seven is symbolic for completeness. So the fact that it's seven churches is a reminder that these seven churches are representative. They, in other words, these letters to the seven churches are meant to be read, read by all churches in all times between Jesus resurrection and his second coming. So in some sense, these seven letters that we're going to read in the, in the next several weeks are also written to us. They're also written in a sense to First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro. The seven letters come on the heels, think of the context, they come on the heels of this earth-shattering vision of a glorious Jesus, the Son of Man, that we looked at last week in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And that's important to keep in mind because as we read each of the seven letters in the coming weeks, we need to remember who is speaking to the churches. It's Jesus. It's the exalted, knee-knocking, glorious Jesus that we saw in chapter one. And it's as if Jesus comes into this church, stands behind each of the pulpits in these seven churches and says, all right, church, let me give you my assessment. Let me tell you how I think that you're doing. So knowing that, knowing that Jesus is kind of taking the pulpit with these seven churches, we do well to sit up and to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying to the church. As we read each of the seven letters, we're going to read one this morning, but as we read each of the seven letters, as we find, we're going to look at the strengths of these churches. So if we find that, hey, this church was good in this area, and we find that it overlaps with maybe our strengths as a church, we should be encouraged by that. We should be strengthened by that. We should praise God for that. But where we also see certain um, weaknesses or faults in these churches, listed in these seven churches, and if we see overlap that maybe those faults or weaknesses are true of us as a church, we must also take heed and repent. So with that in mind, let's look at the letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Now, being that this is the first of seven letters, let me kind of try to frame a little bit more uh, the seven letters for us, because we're going to see this pattern in, in the coming weeks. Um, each of the seven churches in chapter, each of the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three share a common pattern, kind of a six-fold pattern. First, each letter begins with a recipient. So you'll see there in verse one, to the angel, that's the recipient, to the angel of the church in Ephesus or in Smyrna or in Pergamum and so on. So there's a lot of discussion about who is this angel that, that John has in mind? Some people argue that it refers to a messenger who's the courier for this letter. Others say that it's a reference to the pastor of that church. Other people say, no, it's just a supernatural angel. And I think it could be either. Um, given that the Greek word for angel can be interpreted as messenger, it's, it's a valid interpretation to say that it could be a reference to the pastor or a messenger. 
But one thing to note is that every time that an angel shows up in Revelation, and it shows up a lot, 79 times, every time it shows up in Revelation, it refers to a supernatural being. So I think that when John is referring to an angel here, he's actually referring to a supernatural being. Likely that God has assigned an, a specific angel to a, a church to, to then minister to that church. But whatever the case of what the angel is, the audience of each letter is clear. It's not the angel, it's the church. And we know that from verse 7. Verse 7 says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So uh, maybe this angel is part of ministering to that church, but the letter, each of the letters is written to a specific church and these seven churches as a whole. Second characteristic that these letters share in common, each letter mentions something about Jesus that we saw from this glorious vision in chapter one. And, And John is purposeful in grabbing one of the aspects from this vision Um, that has something to do with a weakness or a strength for that particular church, okay? So for instance, for Ephesus, one of the the things that John grabs is that Jesus is the one, he's the son of man who holds the seven stars in his hand, and he's the one who walks among the lampstands. And we're gonna see how that's important for the weakness and the strength of the church in Ephesus. Third, each letter, each of these seven letters, has Jesus' evaluation of the church, We're going to hear him say, this is what you're doing well. Way to go. Here's what's not going well. You need to correct this. Number four, each letter offers encouragement or a call to repent. An encouragement and or a call to repent. Number five, each letter invites us to hear. We're going to see this phrase happen in each of the letters. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. He's not talking about physical ears. He's talking about the the ears of your heart, that we would hear Jesus speak to us and respond in obedience. And then the last characteristic, number six, each letter has a promise to the one who reads and overcomes. There's a promise for those who are overcomers or or who are conquerors. Now I want to end there because each, the idea of, conquering points really to the main idea of the whole book. We've said this from the very beginning, that if we could summarize the message of Revelation, it's this. Jesus wins. Jesus overcomes. Jesus is the conqueror. And so this idea of us conquering uh, points to the main idea of the book. The word for conquer or overcomer is the Greek word nikao or nike like your tennis shoe. It means victory. That swoosh on your your shoe is is a symbol for victory. So that's that's kind of the tenor of these letters. You have have the Roman emperor Domitian who is saying, I'm God and you have to worship me or else. You have Roman citizens who are accusing Christians, you're out of step. You're out of step with the times for not joining in. You're hurting our economy by not worshiping the emperor, and they're they're under pressure in that sense. There's rampant sexual sin in the Roman Empire. There's there's rampant idolatry in the church of Ephesus, in the the city of Ephesus. It's where the the temple to Artemis or Diana is, is housed. There's greed. There's violence. So needless to say, each of these seven churches is under incredible pressure to conform to the world. Some things never change. So whether it's a desire for social acceptance or just simply a desire not to face persecution, each of these churches is tempted to give in, to succumb to the pressure, to mix the way the world thinks to mix that with the Bible and with what Christianity is saying to make themselves a little more palatable to the world. And the question is, would these churches give up? Would they give in? Or would they persevere and be faithful? Would these churches succumb? Or would they conquer and be overcomers? Now, each of the seven churches that we're going to meet in the coming weeks had unique strengths 
and unique weaknesses. Ephesus is biblical, but lacking in love. Smyrna is vibrant, but fearful. Pergamum is faithfully witnessing, but they're immoral. Thyatira is loving, but they're overly tolerant of false teaching. Sardis looks good on the outside, but is dead on the inside. Philadelphia is tired, struggling, but they're faithful. Laodicea is wealthy, looks good, but they're lukewarm. Every church has their weaknesses. Every church has their strengths. And it's a reminder, these, this, that quick summary is a reminder for us even today that no church is perfect. This side of heaven, no church is perfect. Why? Because it's made of people like me and you. And neither are two churches, if you put any two churches together, neither are two churches identical. But whatever the differences are between churches, each church, each of the seven churches and every church today is faced with the same question. Same question we're asking today in 2024. How can we be conquerors or overcomers in a hostile world? How can we as a church be overcomers in a hostile world? Jesus' assessment of the church in Ephesus shows us what's going well in the church, what's not going well. So if we are to be overcomers, point number one, we're going to focus on what's going well in the church. Point number one, hold fast to the truth. If you're going to become overcomers, hold fast to the truth. Now, as the one, as Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, it's a reminder that Jesus is, Jesus has the right to give his authoritative assessment. It also reminds us that he is uh, sovereign. He is in charge of each of these seven churches. He holds them in his hand. As the one who walks among the seven lampstands, we know that Jesus is not some absentee landlord who is cold or indifferent to his people. No, he is in the midst of the seven lampstands. He is in our midst. He is present. He cares. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's going on in our church, and he cares. And so Jesus begins by praising the Ephesian church for holding fast to the truth. And they're holding fast to the truth in three ways. In working, by testing, and by hating. Working, testing, and hating. First of all, they are holding fast to the truth by working hard. Notice in verse 2, Jesus commends them. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. He's like, way to go. These, are, these, are, these church members, if you go to the church in Ephesus, these church members did not come as customers to be served. What you got for me? No, they, they came to, be, to do their work. All the members are working hard as part of the body. They got involved. They used their gifts to spread the gospel and to build up the church. If you attended the church in Ephesus, you would see busy activity. You would see people serving in to teach the young children in the church the Bible. You would see them leading and meeting in small groups and being in prayer meetings and Bible studies and biblical counseling and setting up potlucks and serving their community and serving meals. And it was a busy activity of service and work. It was a hard-working church. If there was a problem in the church, they didn't complain about it. They rolled up their sleeves and they worked a solution. They were not just hearers of the word. They were doers of the word. You know, sometimes when we work hard, we serve in some capacity, it goes unnoticed. No one thanks us for our hard work, and that can be hard. But Jesus says, I know your works. I'm in the midst of the lampstands. I know your works. No one else may see it, but Jesus does. And guess what? That's the one that matters. Just as Jesus taught, your God who sees in secret will reward you. So they hold fast to the truth by being a hard-working church. They also hold fast to the truth by testing. 
Look at verse 2. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. The word cannot bear, you can also translate it as you, cannot, you, won't, you don't tolerate. You cannot bear, you do not tolerate those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. They tested something and they found it to be false. This church was not a pushover. They were not gullible. They tested everything that they watched. They tested everything they listened to. Is this according to the truth or not? Now, if you're going to test something, you have to have a standard, right? So if you are manufacturing tape measurers, you can't just wake up and say, you know what, I think I'm going to say that a foot is 13 inches. I mean, you can, but no one's going to buy your tape measures because it's not according to the standard, right? It's not a good tape measure. If you're a teacher grading a student's exam, you grade their work according to the standard or to the key. We do this all the time. To know what's true or false, to know what's good or evil, we test. We have to test what we're listening to or watching by the standard of God's word by the standard of truth, which is the Bible. Now, this is important for us because the world does not agree that the Bible is the standard of truth. Just as there was pressure on the church in Ephesus to conform to the way the world thought, there is considerable pressure today for the church to conform to the world's thinking on truth or gender or homosexuality or marriage, or for what's moral or not moral for sex, or how we should think about ethnicity, or the exclusivity of Jesus. And there's a host, there's a host of other ideas that we're being pressured by the world to conform to the way the world thinks. And I think if we just kind of look at the last 30 years, given the dramatic shifts that we've seen in the world over the last 30 to 40 years, that pressure affects different generations, I think, differently. So if you are 30 years old or younger, the pressure on you may feel stronger because what the world says is normal is now is the only normal you've ever known. Those, those of us who are older than you have seen that wasn't always normal. That was, there was a day when that was strange, and now it's normal. But my point is, is that the battle, the conflict is over what is the standard? What is the authority on truth? right and wrong, good and evil. And the world seeks to chip away at the standard with questions that promote doubt. Did God really say that? Are you sure you're reading the text rightly? Is the Bible really reliable? And then you look around and there are teachers and podcasts and books that will take the Bible out of context and twist the scriptures, so as to celebrate something that God condemns. And once they get us to begin to doubt the Bible, then they follow up with another question. Well, how can that be wrong then? If so many people live this way and seem to be happy, how can it be wrong? Don't you want people to be happy? And all of a sudden, now we're the bad guys. It's a battle over the standard. Without testing what we listen to or watch, the change in the standard may go unnoticed. It's a very subtle change that happens over time, but eventually our standard changes. Instead of God's word, we find over time that we begin to look first within ourselves. Or we look to how others think on questions of our identity, questions of morality, what's right and wrong, questions of truth. And sure, the Bible may may be mixed in there somewhere in our thinking, but it's no longer the authority, the deciding factor, the authority, the standard. Instead, what's happened is there's been a switch. Instead of the Bible being the standard and the authority, now we are. I know right and wrong, false and true, by what I think, what I feel, what I desire. Or we look to the opinion of others. What's the latest poll? 
What's, what's the pulse? What is the community saying? And that's how we know right and wrong or true and false. Part of the reason I bring this up is because we shouldn't panic that, that the world is pressuring us to change the standard. It, there's nothing new under the sun. This is not new to us. This has been happening ever since the beginning. We might package it differently than the previous generation, but humans have pushed against God's standard since the beginning. It's what we see happening in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and that pattern has been on recycle and recycle and recycle ever since. Satan gets into the garden, and he seeks to deceive Eve and change the standard with three simple lies. Lie number one, he tries to get Eve to doubt God's word. Genesis 3 verse 1, did God really say Because Satan's crafty, he doesn't come on at it head on. He eases into it with a question. Did God actually say? And if he can get Eve to begin to wobble just a little bit on her confidence in God's word, and the seed of doubt has been planted, then he he moves on to the second lie. Genesis 3 verse 4. You will not surely die. God was clear in Genesis 2 that the consequence of sin is death. But Satan, Satan's second lie was that disobedience does not have consequences. Then Satan issues a third lie. This time to get Eve to believe that God doesn't have her best interest in mind. Genesis 3 verse 5. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan says to Eve, God's not good. He's a killjoy. He's holding out on you. So if you want to experience life and joy to the full, decide for yourself what's good and evil. But if we exchange God's standard of truth for our own metrics of right and wrong or true and false, what we're saying is that we know better than God. We know better at God than knowing what's best for us, and we don't trust him to know and show us how we can flourish. I was struck by what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 6. Verse three, hear, O Israel, these commands, hear, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you. These commands are not given. God's commands are not given for our misery and to make make us to be a killjoy. No, God's commands are given to give us life that it may go well with you. Satan's a liar. It didn't go well for Adam and Eve when when they took the bait and it doesn't go well when we change the standard today. When we doubt God's goodness, when we decide for ourselves, we're falling for the oldest lie in the book. Now, admittedly, and I think we, we need to recognize this, some churches have handled God's good truth in an unloving way. And that's what's turned people off. And we need to own that. We need to take responsibility for ways that we have been unloving or harsh and mishandled God's word. When we've said, thus says the Lord, and God has never said that. When we, when we as Christians or the church has done that, we need to own that. But even if your math teacher was a jerk, it doesn't mean that two plus two now equals five. There is a standard, and it's the God's word. God has spoken, and he speaks to us today through his true, authoritative, sufficient, and good word in the pages of the Bible. In the church of Ephesus, everything they heard and they watched, they tested according to the standard of God's word. They discerned lies from truth, good from evil, according to God's word, and Jesus looks at them and says, way to go. If you're gonna overcome, you gotta hold fast to the truth, by testing what you hear according to God's word. Friends, is the Bible your standard for right and wrong, truth and falsehood? 
when the Bible confronts you, how do you respond? Do you ignore it? Write it off? Twist it? Or do you submit? If you're wrestling with the goodness and truth of God's word, not sure yet, start here. Pick up the Bible and read it for yourself. One of the best arguments for the goodness and the truthfulness of God's word is the Bible. Don't take other people's word for it. Read the Bible yourself. Start with the book of John. Read it with an open mind. Be honest that it, and, 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 and commit yourself that if you find this to be true, you will, you will follow. You'll submit. And as you read, pray. Ask God to, to search your heart and to show you and to teach you as you read. And then once, once you see that God's word is true, put a stake in the ground. If you're a Christian, put a stake in the ground. God's word is good. God's word is true. It's authoritative. It is sufficient. Because once, you've, once that's established, once you've put the stake in the ground, then you can ask whatever question you have. Ask whatever question comes to mind. You don't need to be afraid of the questions. Because with God's word as our authority, it's kind of like having the bumpers in the bowling alley. You know, you know when you go bowling at the bowling alley and you put the bumpers in the, in the gutters? You can throw the bowling ball down and it's going to go left or right, but it's going to make it to the end. With God's word as our authority, we can ask the questions and the bowling ball might go left or right, but it's going to make it to the end. We don't need to be afraid about hard questions. If the Bible is true, it will stand up to those questions. Ask whatever you want, but start with establishing an understanding that God's word is true and good and authoritative. The Ephesian church held fast to the truth by working hard and by testing and also by hating. And that might sound strange, but look at verse 6. Yet, Jesus says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're not exactly sure who the Nicolaitans are. We're going to meet them again later on in chapter 2. Um, they seem to be some sort of a false teacher who were endorsing immorality or idolatry. Whatever it is, they're doing something that Jesus hates. They're involved in deeds, actions, works that Jesus hates, and the church in Ephesus hated as well. I think we need to remember that love comes with hate. Because I love Katie, I am not indifferent. I hate any plans that somebody may have to harm or to destroy her. In fact, if I don't hate those plans, you should question my love for my wife. Love comes with hate. And notice in verse 6, it's not that they hated the Nicolaitans. Verse 6 says that they hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Listen, there are things that we all agree, and I think the world agrees, are wrong and we should hate. Things like murder. If you took a poll in the world, should we hate abusing kids for the fun of it? The world would say, yes. There, so that we, we all are in our agreement that there are certain things that we should hate. And I understand that hate is a strong word, but what we're meant to ask here is, do we hate the things that Jesus hates? Do we love the things that he loves? Do we hate the things that he hates? And if we find ourselves out of sync with Jesus, he hates something, but we don't, is it possible that your standard has conformed to the world's way of thinking and not the Bible? When Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus, standing for truth, holding fast to the truth, bearing up under the pressure of the world and not caving to the worldly pressure, when they, and he sees them refusing false teachers and testing what they're, what they're listening to, Jesus says, good job. You're, you're working hard. You're testing what you hear. You're, you hate what I hate. Good job, church. Keep it up, praising them. He is commending them for holding fast to the truth. You gotta hold fast, we have to hold fast to the truth if we're gonna become overcomers. Amen? But as important as having good theology is, 
It's not enough. If we are to be overcomers in a hostile world, we must also, point number two, we must also rekindle lost love. Point number two, rekindle lost love. So after, after commending the church, way to go, guys, we come to verse four. And Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The word for abandoned means that you left something behind. If you have young kids, you'll know what this means, right? It's something that you once had, like a coat or a hat, but you left behind at the friend's house because you got too busy or distracted and forgot about your hat or your coat. You abandoned it. Jesus is saying, that's what you've done with your love. When John talks about love, one of the questions we have to ask is, okay, what's he talking about? Is it love for Jesus? Is it love for neighbor, our non-Christian neighbor? Is it love for other members of the church? And there's a lot of debate among those three, among scholars. But I think the answer is yes. I don't think we're meant to separate them. I think he means all three of them. And the reason I think that is because John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote 1 John. And he says in chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John doesn't separate them, he leaves them together, and so should we. This is a call to love God, to love our lost neighbor, to love the other members of your church. The church at Ephesus was theologically sound. They had good books on their bookstall. They had solid teaching in Sunday school in their pulpit. They had a commitment to truth. But their heart had grown cold callous towards God and towards other people. It's a good warning for us, church. It's possible for us to be active in ministry, serving God, serving God's people, working hard, loving good theology, only to end up falling in love with ministry, falling in love with being noticed or appreciated for our ministry, rather than loving the people we're ministering to. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am Nothing. So what is, what is this neighborly love? What, what does he mean by love for other Christians or love for our lost neighbor? Is he talking about having warm, fuzzy feelings? Aww. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 13 is helpful. 1 Corinthians 13 defines love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what love is. Friends, it's one thing to love those who agree with us and who look like us and vote like us and are nice to us. But have you lost love for those people who drive you crazy? Do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? 
because Jesus commands us to. We are only, this is why not, it's important not to disconnect love for God and love for others. We're only able to love our neighbor like that. We're only able to love our enemy when we have a passionate love for God. Take away somebody's love for God, you will not love your neighbor. You will not love the other church member. The love you had at first, I think, refers to the idea of the time in our life when our eyes were opened to our sinfulness. And then when we were at the bottom of the barrel and we were about to lose hope because we realized how sinful we were, we saw God's amazing grace. That person in that moment is excited about God. They are baffled that God would love them, floored that God would love them. They, they, they love God. They want to be around God's people. They can't get enough of God's word. And they are eager to tell as many people about Jesus as they can. They're not embarrassed. They love him. And they want to tell the world about him. Well, how do we know if we've lost our first love? You want to know what your heart loves, just do an assessment of what comes out of your mouth over the week. It's easy to talk about sports with our friends and neighbors. It's easy to talk about clothing or the TV show we like or how work is going and even talk about what's going on at church. And none of those things are bad. We should talk about those things. And yet, we might find it embarrassing to talk about Jesus. Not the things surrounding Jesus, but to actually talk about Jesus. We might find it awkward to talk about Jesus at the dinner table. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Another way to test your heart is to know how you spend your time and how you spend your money. When I was in seminary, I, I was busy. I was working two or three jobs at the same time. I had a full class load, and I was starting a relationship where I was dating Katie. But guess what? No matter how busy I was, I always had time for Katie. And it was never burdensome. You would never hear me complaining, oh, I have to go and see Katie. I'm, yes, what time? Are you busy? Sure. We're all busy. But we don't think twice about paying for something that we value or spending time on something that's important to us. We always have time for that which is important to us. Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, all through Scripture, our relationship with God is not likened to a ticket to heaven. Our relationship with God is likened to the relationship between a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom. It's amazing. God pursues us. God knocks on the door and pursues us and wants to enter into a vibrant, personal, intimate relationship with us. That's the image that we see in scripture. And yet even though God is pursuing us to have a love relationship with us, we're often distracted, too busy, too preoccupied with work, sports, hobbies, TV shows, vacation plans. Before long, our love for God is reduced to a ticket to heaven. I put it in the drawer somewhere. I'll get it when I need it. We may even keep up the external religious activities, but like the church in Ephesus, our love has grown cold. This is serious. If this is true of you, if this is true of us, if this is true for a church, what should that church do? Well, Jesus tells us in verse five. Look at verse five. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Three things he says at the beginning of verse 5. Remember, repent, and repeat. If you find that your heart has grown cold, remember, repent, and repeat. First, remember. Rehearse the good news. Remember it. Bring to mind the character of God. Our mind is often preoccupied with the stress of life, the things that leave us anxious. But rehearse in your heart and your mind, this is who God is. This is the good news. This is why God is good. Remember how deep the Father's love is for us. Remember that though it was our sin on Jesus' shoulders, it was his dying breath that brought us life. Remember that his dying breath, his dying on the cross, transformed a wretch like you and me into make us his treasure, his son, his daughter. That's what we sang about earlier. In fact, friends, when we gather like this every week, I think the Lord knows that we need it weekly because we're remembering. I'm not here to give you something new and innovative and you never heard before. I'm here to help us remember. We need to remember the truth of God as he has revealed himself. We need to remember the truth of the gospel and rehearse it. And then with the help of the Holy Spirit, those truths are not old and stale. With the help of the Holy Spirit, those truths become amazing and glorious and he kindles that fire in our hearts to a flame in love for God. That's why we gather, that's why we remember. So first, remember. Second, he says, repent. You know what repentance is? It simply means to do a 180. If you're walking this way, repentance is doing this, a U-turn. It's a change of mind. It's a 180, it's a U-turn. And the idea here is, I don't think that Jesus is saying, hey, by repentance I mean, you know, go off in a quiet place and think about it for a little bit. And maybe next month you can get back to me. Uh-uh. This is a jealous lover saying, make up your mind. It's either me or her. Repent now. And this is not God being harsh with us. This is God saying, you're drinking sewage. You're drinking poison. I have something better for you. I'm calling you back to myself. Repent. I have something far better for you. That it may go well with you. Remember, repent. Third, repeat. He says, do the works you did at first. So, This is more than just a New Year's resolution that you do nothing with. This is more than just thinking, yeah, man, Revelation 2 this morning, I need to love God more, and then you forget about it. Uh Uh-uh. This involves action. Repentance involves action. It involves changing schedules, changing habits, changing commitments. It involves showing up at church each Sunday. It involves reading the cleansing word of God daily. It involves Responding to God daily in prayer. Church, reading your, God's word, praying. I get it. It may sound boring and cliche. Maybe you thought that there'd be something more exciting to invigorate your love for God. But listen, the daily reading of scripture and prayer are the means that God has graciously given us to cultivate love. I imagine that few married couples would say that the constant presence and pursuit of their spouse toward them would be something that's unwelcome. In fact, the regular giving of words of affirmation or affection from a spouse, the showing up in real presence is often what keeps love aflame in a marriage. It's also what keeps our love for God and others aflame by us desperately pursuing God in prayer desperately reading his word, meeting together in purpose and asking God, meet with us, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says, open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. Remember, repent, and repeat. Well, how big of a deal is this, though? 
How urgent is it that we rekindle lost love for God or for others, for our lost neighbor or for our fellow church members? Well, Jesus warns at the end of verse 5. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's how important it is. That's how urgent it is. Since the lampstand is the church, his warning here is that he will shut them down. He will shut the church down that does not love. God, neighbor, fellow church member. As one writer notes, where love for Jesus goes, so does the light of that lamp. Without first love, service in the church becomes lifeless routine or drudgery. Without first love, theological soundness becomes narrow-minded, nitpicky legalism. Without first love, hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans becomes hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. How will the world know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. By our love for God. That's why we sang earlier in in Genuine Love. I love singing that. Teach us love. Teach us love. Teach us genuine love. Why? So the world may see that you are alive in us. We don't love, the world won't see. Our light goes out, and if we don't repent, he will, he will shut us down. He will shut that church down. This is serious. Now listen, it's possible. You might hear this and say, listen, I haven't lost my first love. I love Jesus. I love the church. I love my lost neighbor. Praise God. That might be true of you. Praise God. But as you read this, don't, don't read Jesus' word to the church in Ephesus as if this is Jesus' online review, like it's a Yelp review. Don't read this as if you're a customer at church. The church is not them. Don't think of the church as them. Yeah, Jesus is critiquing them at First Baptist. No, he's critiquing us. It's not them, it's us. You are a part of a body. Do you know that? So if the doctor says, your leg is broken. Your arm does not say, hey, my problem. I was good in another body. Doesn't work that way. If your leg is broken, your arm hurts with it. So yes, you are individually a Christian, but Jesus is writing to the church, and we should read this corporately as, yes, there's a personal word to us, and there's also meant that we're also meant to read this corporately and respond to Jesus' warning. So, What do we do then? What do we do with Jesus' words? Look at verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The church is. Think of Jesus' encouragement or his warning here in verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear. Think of that as the rumble strips on the highway. These are spiritual rumble strips. What I mean by that is if you're driving down the highway and you're tired and you fall asleep and your car starts to drift and drift, what do the rumble strips do? Boom, 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 I'm awake. And you steer the car back on the road and you don't die. That's what this warning is. If you have ears, hear and respond. Because if you're, if, if you're driving on the highway and you have a heart attack and you die and your car starts to drift, what, how do you respond to the rumble strips? Exactly, you don't, you're dead. Friends, if, if you read Jesus' word in Revelation 2 and it bothers you, it pricks your conscience, it makes you uneasy, praise God. It's the rumble strips. It's not him hitting you over the head, it's him lovingly calling you to something better. You're driving off the road, come back. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, means listen to Jesus. This is not just a Bible study. This is Jesus calling you and I to respond, repent, and repeat. 
And then Jesus ends in verse 7 with a glorious promise. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does that sound like? Sounds like Genesis 2. Sounds like the Garden of Eden. It sounds like paradise. And in fact, the very first time we see the tree of life in Scripture is in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden. There, the tree of life represents the eternal life that is found in God. That he is life and he gives life to his people as they rely on him and submit to him and live in his glorious presence. That's what makes paradise paradise. But the tree of life was not the only tree in the garden. And when Adam and Eve rejected God's good rule, disobeyed him, and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was God said not to, sin separated them from God. Paradise was lost. The whole world was cursed and began to groan under the burden of sin. And we as sinful people no longer had access to the tree of life because of our sin. And left to ourselves, that's where you and I find ourselves. Our sin, we are all sinners, and our sin separates us from a holy God. And our sin deserves death. But the good news of Christianity, friends, is Jesus Christ. When he came, he announced that God's eternal life was now available again through him. As the son of God, he took on flesh, fully God and fully man, and he lived a perfect life of obedience that we failed to live. And then he died in our place for our sin. Listen, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus died on a tree, rose again on the third day in order to grant access and open the door to the tree of life. And he is, in a sense, the tree of life. I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. For all who repent and trust in him. You see what that means? That means that the one who conquers is not this super strong, elite person who always gets it right. Don't think of overcomer, don't think of conqueror as that. It's the opposite. The overcomer is the weak, the broken, the sinner who runs to God because he or she knows I need help. It's the person who loves God much because they have been forgiven much. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, I pray that today you see his heart for you. The way to eternal life is not closed or blocked. Jesus is the way, and he's calling you today to himself, to something better. I pray that you turn from your sin and turn from your self-reliance and trust in Jesus, who gives eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as those who are weak and sinful and broken. We come as those who at times are weary. We do not boast in ourselves and our accomplishments. We boast in Jesus this morning. God, I pray, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. That you would help us to remember such that our love for you and others burns bright. That we would remember such that our love for you is kindled. That you would grant us true repentance. 
that we would hold fast to your word, that we would work hard and test everything and love what you love and hate what you hate, but Lord, we also pray that we would love you supremely. Grant us this for our good and for your glory, pray in Jesus' name.